Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's episode is from our Sunday Adult Faith Formation Forum, Purity, Gender, and the Gospel, led by Mark Gravrock. For more information on the community and ministries of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, you can visit our website, smlutheran.org. And now, here's Mark Gravrock with an opening song. Take, oh, take me as I am, summon out what I shall be, set your seal upon my heart and live in me. Take, oh, take me as I am, Sunday. If you've been in, in worship already, you're aware that the gospel is uh, John 8, where Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He's talking with folks who are anchored in this kind of stuff that we're reading, and are believing in Jesus, and are struggling caught between them. Um, the Pharisees, as I understand it anyway, the Pharisees of Jesus' day one of their, they were very faithful people. And one of the main things that, that was on their agenda was to take uh, works like Leviticus, the, which would really guides the priests in their activities, and to expand that into the, com- the whole community so that the entire community of faith is called to live priestly holiness and priestly purity. And Jesus butts heads with them. Well, as we go along, we're going to have to look and see how, how is Scripture moving? How is God at work all the way through? And how is God leading us forward? What is Jesus up to when he tangles with purity? But we're not there yet. Today we're in the depths of purity and we're trying to get a handle on what that's all about. Before we go any further, there's one other word I wanted to bring up that we didn't mention last time. That's the word taboo. Taboo is not in Scripture. Uh, but you're familiar with the word. When you hear the word taboo, what do you hear? What do you think? What comes to mind? Forbidden. Forbidden. 
dare mess with it. If something is so awful that you don't dare mess with it, it's taboo. Okay. I don't, that taboo items probably vary from culture to culture as to what they might be. Um, do you have any other sense of besides forbidden and it's awful, or what else comes to mind? I, I kind of think of the Hawaiian system where it was taboo to do anything that was for royalty. So if it was royalty, it was exclusive, and if you did, it was forbidden, but it was forbidden for a reason of class or, or exclusivity. Okay, I don't know if you could hear Carol, but she's talking about um, about the, the Hawaiian system of taboo and how focused that is on the classes between royalty and other folks. And there are things that belong to royalty that if you as a commoner dabble into, you're crossing lines of taboo. So it's not necessarily, and that, that's not a case where it's awful, it's a case where it's off limits to you. Okay. Other things you think of? Sexual things. Sexual things. What makes them taboo? Anything that is out of, out of code, out of acceptance, out of the realm of... Sure. Anything out of code, out of acceptance, out of the realm. I wanted to bring this up because there are, there are elements of taboo, even though the Bible doesn't use the word taboo. There are elements of purity. Purity has taboo elements to it. That there are, some things are excluded, off limits, because they are frightening or because they are conceived to be out of place in one way or another. Some things are taboo because they are too wonderful. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. I'm using the language of purity, not the language of taboo. One of them comes from the couple of the centuries before Jesus, say about 200 BC to about 100 AD, when the rabbis, the rabbinic scholars, we're trying to define what is scripture, what, which, which texts will count as Holy Scripture and which ones will not. That actually went through several waves of decision along the way. And the term that the rabbis used for something that is scripture is it defiles your hands. Those are the books that if you touch them, if you handle them, it defiles your hands. Is scripture dirty? Is scripture icky? Well, yeah, sometimes, but <laughs> what does that mean? Here are works, here are books that are, that are so revered and so God-focused and God-purposed or whatever that if you dabble with them, you probably need to go through purity rituals afterwards to return to normal life again. You've encountered the holy. You've encountered something that's too wonderful. That's... And it's called unclean. It makes your hands unclean. That, I beg your pardon? Well, here's another example from Leviticus. It's Leviticus 12. That's the chapter on childbirth. Now, if you've read Leviticus at all, you may be aware that uh, when, a, when a woman gives birth to a child, there's a period of separation, a period of uncleanness, where she's set apart and can't mingle with society. Um, and it's longer for girls than for baby girls than it is for baby boys, both mother and child. Are, are set apart, they're unclean for a certain amount of time. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff going on in there. A lot of the, a lot of the patriarchal, a lot of the um, purity code is shaped by a patriarchal culture, by a male-dominated culture, and male-dominated cultures tend to be a little uneasy about things like menstrual blood and whatever all the key things happen at childbirth that we just don't understand and there's probably some element of that in there. But there's also something, this is, we're at the boundaries of life. We're at the place where life begins. And there's something set apart about that. There's something that's taboo about that. It needs to be excluded from normal commerce. There's even some debate about why is it, why are they, why is the period twice as long for baby girls than for baby boys? Well, most scholars would say it's because it's a male-dominated culture and they didn't value girls as much. Some scholars say the opposite. It's that baby girls are now baby women, that they are born with this mystery of childbearing and need to be set apart for twice as long because it's something more marvelous. I don't know which is the truth about that. The Bible doesn't say. You can take your pick. 
But just, I wanted to bring those out because here, this taboo element, unclean doesn't only mean dirty, icky, stay away from it. It also means something too wonderful. Uh, the bound, and they're often at the boundaries of life. Birth, death, sexuality, matters like that. That's where we're going today. I wanted to introduce you to Mary Douglas. She was a British social anthropologist. She wrote her major work back in 1966 called Purity and Danger, an analysis of concepts of pollution and taboo. Uh, one chapter in that book focuses on the, on the, the impurities of Leviticus. And she's, she was kind of the seminal scholar back in the 60s got the study of the sociological study of purity and taboo going. And a whole lot of scholars have, seen, have followed her and challenged her and gone in different directions. She gave, she gave us a number of really helpful concepts. She also got some things wrong about Leviticus. And to her credit, this tells me she's a good scholar, to her credit, she came out later with an article that said, I was wrong about these things, I've changed my mind. I respect scholars like that. So she got some stuff right, she got some stuff wrong. Um, that enables me to get things right and get things wrong as well. It's, that's helpful. Uh, for example, one of the things that, she, that she's probably partly right about, and part of what's awkward in this is that she's looking at sociological concepts of purity around the world, and then looking at the scripture to see how does it play out there. Uh, so her starting point is not from Bible, it's from somewhere else. As she looks at purity concepts around the world, um, she looked at the uh, animals in the food laws there in Leviticus. And she said, well, at least in part, what's going on there is that there are certain critters that belong to certain realms. Back in Genesis 1, God separated the light from the dark, the sea, the water above from the waters below, the sea from the land to make habitable zones for the different kinds of critters. And so you've got birds that fly in the sky. What do you do with a bird that can't fly? Unclean. It doesn't fit. Birds are supposed to fly. Land critters, ones that walk on all fours. Which ones are clean and unclean? Well, they're supposed to walk on all fours, but what do you do about those creepy crawlies that walk on a hundred legs or however many, six legs, or they're all unclean? The Bible calls them swarmers. A whole class of them, unclean. Or the fish. This is the one where I think she, her insights were most helpful. The sea creatures. Do you know from Leviticus which ones are clean and which ones are unclean? I know you're steeped in this stuff. <laughs> those that are clean, those that you can eat, are the ones that have fins and scales. So any of you that like shellfish or anything like that, I'm sorry, you're breaking God's law. <laughs> um, only fish that have fins and scales. Those have proper locomotion for that water realm. There's a certain kind of critter that belongs, and those that are kind of boundary critters, they're unclean. I think her insights are at least partly right about that stuff. One of the places that she was wrong, and that she corrected herself later on, was she would look at, at uh, purity systems around the world and drew the correlation between the uh, human body secure or porous, and the social body, secure or porous. So things that go in and out of the human body are threatening. And likewise, correlatingly, think boundaries in the social body, if they're too porous, they're threatening. I think she's got some insights there, but, but one of the places that she was wrong was what we looked at already last time. When you look at all the stuff that can come out of your body, which ones are not, not unclean, not poop and pee, not spit, not vomit, not snot, not uh, pus, none of that stuff. The only ones that are unclean are which ones? Blood. Blood and? Semen. And semen. Blood and sexual fluids of both varieties. Yeah. And those, as we saw, are the fluids of life and death. And that's where she had to correct herself later and say, you know, when I really looked at the text, I was wrong. Well, part of what I want to say about all this is that I can't tell you that this is what God is doing, but it's, I have some convictions that God is involved in this purity stuff. If you compare the purity systems of, of ancient Israel 
with those of its neighbors, the Hittites up in, up in Turkey, the Babylonians and the Assyrians over in Mesopotamia, the Canaanites right nearby, the Egyptians down southwest. There are a lot of similarities in their purity systems all around. It's a culture-wide purity system. And then there are differences. We'll talk more about this next week, about how God seems to love to take what's there in the culture already and start tweaking it, start playing with it. I was under the impression that a lot of the rules had to do with disease and God forbidding certain things because the animals are, are shellfish and that had more opportunity for disease. Could you hear her? Um, the question of, are this, is this based in concern for disease? And it's possible that there is some early hygiene and early, early medical science at the root of some of these particular laws, but there are also some of them that totally fly in the face of it. Um, you know, the, the not eating pork, is it because of a danger of, what is it, trichinosis? <laughs> um, possibly, maybe they had experience with that and learned, or God taught them, hey, you know, stay away from this one. Um, so there are pieces like that that crop up that make you think, is this early hygiene and early medicine? Some of them possibly. And then there are some of them that just don't make any sense. We'll, we'll, when we look at um, um, leprosy today, we'll see some of that. In the same vein, uh, I thought like the, t um, the tattooing and the piercings that they were told not to do, and I wonder if that has to do with you know, the health issues. Possibly. The tattooing and piercings, does that have to do with health issues? Could be. Another possibility with those is um, um, other, other religious cults around that did do tattooing or cutting some certain kinds on behalf of the dead, those kinds of practices. So some of the, some of the things that we see excluded may have a, hey, we're not going to do that stuff kind of note to it. We're not going to participate in that cult. There are possibly lots of origins for this stuff. But what I want to suggest to you is that God, or the rabbis, or whoever, that God is taking this stuff that's already in the surrounding world and shaping it for a particular message. That's where we're going today. Here was our introduction last time. Some of the questions like which bodily fluids are unclean, we've already looked at that one. Which animals are clean for eating? We'll look at that a bit more. When is leprosy clean and when is it unclean? Why are mixtures unclean? Those were our clues from last time, and we'll get into it more deeply today. Um, where we're headed is, of course, the, text, the key text in chapter, chapter 18. And we might as well get that out in front of us so we're thinking about it right away. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Leviticus 18? verses 19 through 23. Leviticus 18. If you've never found Leviticus in the Bible, it's book number, book number three. Leviticus 18, 19 and 23. Are you there? Yes. Would someone read it for us, please? Good and loud. 19 through 23. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in menstrual uncleanliness. You shall not have sexual relations with your kinsman's wife and defile yourself with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to sacrifice them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not have sexual relations with any animal and defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman give herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. It is perversion. Thank you. Uh, we'll get into all of those before the hour is over. But just to start with, are there any, any particular observations that you have? Anything that pops to mind? Uh, in one of the studies I had, they said the word in, in verse 19, uh, the impurity, and then in verse 22, 
the detestable sin or the abomination, those are both the same word, tova, making ritually unclean. It's interesting that they're... Now, they're not the same word, but they're related words. Ah, and there, right. there are actually several purity terms ah. running through these verses. Not every verse has them, and particularly you might have noticed that Moloch one calls it profaning God's name. Um, if you remember last time, we looked at three pairs of terms, clean and unclean, uh, holy and common, sinful and righteous. Um, that one actually pertains, belongs on the holy common one. If you, you're making God common by that kind of Moloch sacrifice. Um, but, uh, but the others, uh, most of the others have purity language in them, even though they're somewhat different terms. It's kind of surprising that you have to tell people that it's not a good idea to sacrifice children. You know, why do we even have to put that in there? It kind of says it shows, it shows the value of, of a young life at that point in time. It's, it's uh, really why do you like, even need to put why? in there that, yeah. you're, that you're not to sacrifice children? Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's kind of like, huh? Just parenthetically, here is one of those biblical trajectories where God takes what society is and starts to work with people. Um, as the Bible begins, human sacrifice is part of what's in the culture. If you remember Genesis, I think it's chapter 22, when God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you love, the text just grinds that in. And here is Isaac, who is the bearer of God's promise for the whole future of his people. Take your take Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar. And we're not told anything about what Abraham feels. We're simply told that he obeys. Which says to me that that's part, enough a part of the culture. Child sacrifice is enough a part of the culture that Abraham, much as he probably hated to have to do it, understood it was part of what's religiously expected in that culture. So that's the first step. And then God, of course, stops him and says, no, for anything else you may feel about that horrible text, God at least stops and, and substitutes a ram. Then this is the next stage of that journey where God says, I forbid child sacrifice. I don't want any of that. And you can follow it through the Old Testament. Then you finally get to the New Testament where God's own son sacrifices himself however you think of that one. And then, did you catch in, the, in Paul that we're called to do human sacrifice to him? Yes. Romans 12, I call you to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You see where God's been doing with this thing all the way through for all these hundreds of years? Taking something in the culture that's abhorrent and moving it from one place to another till we're in a brand new place in Christ. That's a peak of where we'll be going some next week. What else do you notice in there? Let me ask, are there any of those five that, well, someone said last time, is, is it, uh, are we at a place where everything goes? I want to say no, we are not at a place where everything goes. Are there any of these five that you would Want to hang on to today as a, as a law to follow? I'm opening a can of worms by saying uh, that. Probably sex with animals. Probably sex with animals. Yeah. I don't hear that advocated anywhere in our society, do you? <laughs> not that it's not done, I mean advocated publicly. That's, why not? It would traumatize the animal. Traumatize the animal. <laughs> Get the SPCA involved here. <laughs> oh, let's, oh, let's, let's go there. Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. We, we have our own revulsion immediately just to read that. And uh, we've got our own reasons why that would be abhorrent. Um, it may not be the same reasons that the Bible gives. And we'll look at that. Um, how about sex during the menstrual period. Has anybody ever told you you shouldn't do that? I was grew I grew up with that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I didn't grow up with that. I'm a little later. Maybe a little different culture. Okay. We're going to have to get back into that later to see what in the world's going on with this collection of five laws. 
to do that, we've got a long journey to go through first. Leviticus, um, the, the main body of the purity law, there's, there are other pieces elsewhere in the Torah, but the main body of it is in Leviticus 11 through 20. And it begins with this passage in chapter 10. God tells Moses to talk to, talk to Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and say, uh, Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, there's that one pair, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. That's kind of the introductory phrase for this whole set of chapters. I'm going to give you your Hebrew lesson for the day. That word, I promise I won't do that to you very often, but that word distinguish, the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew verb, Hebrew verbs are three consonant roots. So it's B or V, D-L. B-D-L means to be separated. And this is the causative form of that verb, to, uh, to separate something, how deal. You'll see it in several different forms, different vowels in there, but they're all versions of the same thing. It's an important word. It's the word that's used at least twice, maybe three times in Genesis 1, where God separates light from darkness, um, the waters above from the waters below, the sea from the land. The very act of creation is a separating. There's this separating and distinguishing so that life can flourish. So part of what's going on, and we're picking up little clues along the way, part of what goes on in Israel's purity is that to observe purity is to participate in preserving God's creation. That makes sense so far? At the end of chapter 20, after going through 10 chapters of purity laws, would you look please at Leviticus 20? Starting in verse 22. 20, 22. You shall keep all my statutes and my ordinances and observe them, so that the land to which I bring you to settle in may not vomit you out. You shall not follow the practices of the nation that I am driving out before you, because they did all these things. I abhorred them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land. I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, all of a sudden, it shifts. I am the Lord your God. I have separated you, same verb. I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or by bird or by anything which is around teens, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. But here, all of a sudden, at the end of all these purity code, purity code rules, um, Moses come, God comes back to clean and unclean animals. Like, didn't we already talk about that? The entirety of, Genesis, of Leviticus 11 is filled with this stuff. Why do we come back to that again? We've got an envelope going on. If you studied um, literary structures, this is an envelope structure where the whole purity code begins with clean and unclean animals, and now God comes back to it at the end to kind of encompass it all together, to wrap it together in this envelope. That means that the clean and unclean animals are the emblem of the entire purity system. And you've got three sets of, of distinguishings going on now. You've got God separating these elements of creation so that life can flourish. You've got God separating Israel <coughs> from the nations, and you've got Israel being called to separate different kinds of critters, which ones you can eat and which ones you don't. And that's part of their, then their identity. All these different separatings are part of the same system. Okay. So what's in between? That's the beginning and the end. I'm not sure if that's big enough for you to read, but you've got a version of it on your page there as well. So what comes in between the beginnings and the ends of the envelope? So first of all, we've got a chapter full of clean and unclean animals and foods, a chapter on childbirth, two chapters on leprosy, it's not the leprosy that we know later, a chapter on bodily discharges, and by that I should really say genital discharges, male and female. Um, we've got that much there, and then chapter 16 it describes the Day of Atonement. 
a day of atonement where once a year certain rituals need to be need to be uh, gone through in order to cleanse the ta the tabernacle and the altar from not just the sins of the people but the sins and the impurities the sins and the uncleannesses but the idea is over the course of a year God's temp God's God's sanctuary gets uh, clogged up with human stuff our sin and our uncleanness and you need to do cleaning at the end of the year that's the day of atonement covering those things now if you look at this so far what do you, do you notice any, anything in common about those topics that we've got Numbers chapter 12 and chapter 15, childbirth and genital discharges. You've got two chapters uh, bracketing there, dealing with the mystery of our sexuality and our sexual fluids and how they should be handled. Um, you know, so separations around that. Leprosy is kind of a different critter. We're, we'll, we'll come back to that. Where it goes from there. Now you get two chapters that are entirely devoted to the two fluids that we've been talking about. Chapter 17 is entirely devoted to blood. Um, and particularly in terms of when you go hunting, how shall you handle, how shall you kill the animal in a way that's honoring? It sounds a lot like some Native American practices. Uh, but, the, but the focus of it is to, to slit the throat and to spill the blood entirely into the soil. Let the blood go back to the soil um, so that um, partly it's uh, the most painless way that you can kill the animal, but then it's also making sure that you don't consume that blood. Blood is not to be consumed. And after that, there will be a chapter on the use of seed, sexual fluid. Um, yeah, so a chapter on blood, a chapter on seed. Then chapter 19, purity and holiness, that's the one, the only place in the entire purity code that gets a little, it looks ethical to us. We, that's, what, that's the chapter where we get, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we jettison all of Leviticus, we jettison that verse. Except that Jesus picks it up. But, it's, but if you look at that, that chapter is a mix of things that look ethical to us and moral, and others that look like, what land did I just step out in here? This is very different. It's a mix of different kinds of things. Chapter 20 is penalties for different kinds of um, offenses, many of them the death penalty. At the end of that, we saw the, um, the return to the foods issue. And then after that, there's kind of an addendum of two chapters about priests and sacrifices. One of them, the, uh, the priests, means talks about how you, if you are a priest, you cannot serve in the altar, at the altar if your body is not whole. I recall when I was a child, the first blind pastor that was allowed to serve in the, in the American Lutheran Church. Mm -hmm. And that was based on this. Um, but finally they broke through that one and said, no, a blind person can serve too. And then the, uh, a chapter on offerings, animals that you would sacrifice. Don't give God your garbage. Don't give the, the lamb with a broken leg. The, both the priests and the animals need to be whole. So a theme of wholeness comes in there. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard that applied. I had a friend who had uh, who got polio, and this was quite some time ago, obviously. But he, he always felt that these were aimed against him and people who were sick or in wheelchairs or you know. Sure. And I. Never knew quite what to make of that. That's part of what we'll get into here. Okay. But you can see exactly why anyone who is differently able will feel it, will feel exactly that. Why why doesn't God let me serve? Why do I have to be a second class citizen if I have some ailment or another? As if we don't all. Yeah. Maybe that's why sacrificing children because they were free of sin and young animals. Pure. Oh, is there some sense of purity and, and innocence in the young animal and the young child? Could be. Could be. Seems to be that 
um, this is particularly, as you said, part of a pathway. Mm -hmm. First of all, God had to build the nation of Israel. And if you did a lot of these things, um, if you still do see, uh, if you had sex during menstruation, when children were born, and so therefore you were limiting this growth, and also these things about what you should and shouldn't do, the sins of the father, and they were trying to create a pure line that Christ came from without the sins of the father being heaped upon him before he was the he was the pure sacrifice that accepted all of them. I think you're onto something. There are several different ways to look at that, as to what. And, but, part, but I think the heart of what you're, of, at least the part of what I'm hearing in that, is that here is a people that's just been carved out of slavery. They're making their way through the desert. They're fighting there. Um, they need to grow and thrive as a people. And so um, how do you make sure that the nation survives, that the people survives in, a health, in the healthiest possible way? I think there's a lot going on in that. And then, what, is, what does God do, what does Christ do with folks who are differently able? And that's part of the journey along this, this too. So I'm going to suggest to you that in all of this, this priestly uh, Levitical purity code, there are three major themes that come out over and over and over again. You won't find them spelled out. Nowhere in these chapters does God say, this is why I'm doing this. This is what it's all about. We are left to look at the clues of what's there and try to make sense out of what's there. Um, not everything will smooth out nicely. There will be bumps and there will be questions and things that stick in your craw and all of that. But I'm convinced there are some major patterns going on. And of course I'm right. <laughs> of course, that's why we're here. That's right. So theme number one is a theme of life versus death. So one way to think about this is that God shapes the common ancient Near East purity code in such a way as to hold up the themes of life versus death. One way you could think of this is Deuteronomy 30, that God says, choose life. Um, you could say this is a pro-life kind of thing, but that's a loaded term politically, so I don't want to go for that direction necessarily. But this is choosing life rather than death. That's which bodily fluids? The fluids of life and death, blood and, and sexual fluids. Uh, two chapters devoted to that. A chapter devoted to birth. Uh, chapter 21, I didn't mention that, but with the priests, the ones, the high priest, if someone in the high priest's family dies, the high priest is not allowed to grieve. The high priest cannot go through any of the normal grieving rituals because the high priest is there representing God for the people and representing the people for God. Uh, death has no place. Death is that boundary kind of zone that has no place in the middle of worship. That obviously changes in Christ. When Christ himself becomes a corpse, something's going on here. Um, but then, which animals and which foods? Um, we talked about this a little bit already, the land, Douglas, Mary Douglas's work on land critters that walk on all fours versus the creepy crawlies, if you want the Hebrew terms of sherets or remis, usually terms swarmers or those that team on the earth. It's all those creepy little things, <laughs> including uh, flying insects would be creepers of the air, creepers of the sky. Um, birds that fly, fish that swim, there are proper animals that belong in those categories. But I think there's more to it than that. And I touched on this one briefly last time. When you look at the, this is chapter 11, if you want to take a look at that, or if you don't. Um, if you look at the verses 13 through 17, where the animals that are unclean, the birds that are unclean are listed, they are, I think, to a, to a, unless I miss something in there, they are either raptors, or carrion eaters. They either eat the blood of something living or eat the blood of something dead. Uh, I'm glad they're there to take care of the, especially the carrion eaters, help clean up the garbage of the world and all that. But the ones that, the, the ones that consume the blood of other animals are unclean for you. I think it's interesting that the bat shows up in there. I don't know if Israel didn't know that bats are mammals. Or if it's that they did know that bats are mammals and 
that crosses boundaries in too big a way. Mammals should not be flying. <laughs> but in any case, those are the birds. Notice, by the way, that this is uh, Leviticus 11.13. These you shall regard as detestable among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. I want to hit that word abomination just for a moment here because it shows up in all the homosexuality conversations, right? Abomination is a, is a term that really, re that's a purity term. And it really refers to impure to the extreme. It often has that kind of gut level response to it. If you read throughout scripture and see where does that term show up, it shows up in surprising ways. First time it appears is back in Genesis when Jacob and his family go to Egypt to live. And, J and Joseph tells his father, father uh, don't tell them that, we're, um, that you are shepherds because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. There's no explanation for that. But it's the same word. But there are cultural abominations. There are, cult there are things that one culture deems as detestable as super unclean. Well, here's the next place it shows up. What's unclean here? Certain birds. What's abomination here? Certain. Didn't God make those birds? Some of them are abomination. I just want to flag that for you now so that we don't absolutize that. I want to take the term seriously, but not absolutize it. The unclean quadrupeds. If you start at in that first passage, verses 3 through 7, you get the, the business about the ones that you can eat are the ones that part the hoof and um, chew the cut. That's not a reason. That's a test for you to figure out which ones are okay. Uh, that doesn't give any reason at all. And if you read through that first paragraph, I'm not sure why, what's going on with some of those. What's wrong with camels? Um, what's wrong with rock badgers? Um, it's not clear. We're just not told. What does become more clear is later in the chapter, this is verse 27, all that walk on their paws among the animals that walk on all fours are unclean for you. Which animals walk on paws? Which verse is that? I don't have paws. Uh, 11, 27. On all fours. Oh, on all fours, yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. Which ones walk on paws? Cats. Cats, lions, the whole cat family. The whole dog family. Dogs, wolves, foxes, bears. Um, mustelids are the weasels and skunks and that whole, that whole family. Is a skunk a mustelid? Weasels are mustelids anyway. That whole family. These are, all of these families walk on paws. What's wrong with them? They eat meat. They are all carnivores. This, so this one test is anything that walks on its paws, no, they're carnivores, they eat blood. Um, and I, I'm convinced that's really what's going on here, is that the clean animals are the ones that don't eat the blood of other animals. I don't know what the rabbits is about. That's one of those, okay, I can't figure that one out. So that's, I'll leave that to you to track, track that one down. Um, part of what convinces me about this is that chapter 17 is so focused on the pouring out of the blood and that you, Israelite, are not allowed to eat the blood because that's where the life is. That's one of the central values in this whole system. And so it makes sense that the critters are classed in the same kind of way. And I love the fact that all the rodents are swarmers. Yeah. Okay. If you read through the chapter carefully, you'll also notice over and over again about carcasses, about t not touching animal carcasses. Not just unclean ones, about carcasses, carcasses of unclean animals, but the clean ones too. If you touch the carcass of a clean animal, you have to go through certain purity rituals to purify yourself so that you can participate in community life again. So You're in which contact? chapter is this? Uh, this is, that's in chapter 11. And he's, yeah, these verses running through there. And you'll see it showing up in other places. One of the deepest, um, one of the deepest horrors in purity law is touching corpses. Uh, you are touching the realm of death. And that's boundary. Uh, this, this is crucial. 
I think it's kind of interesting in Matthew 5 when Jesus goes to Jairus' daughter and by then she has died. What does he do? Touched her. He touches her hand and calls her back awake again. It be interesting to watch all kinds of purity things Jesus does. Okay. Uh, in, in the life and death theme also, we've been looking at death, we've been looking at boundaries, also birth, certainly. So the mysteries of birth, the mysteries of sexuality, the mysteries of death. This is life and death focused. Um, so here's a blood and seed, or, um, pardon me, the, the life versus death. All these blood and seed issues, bodily flows, birth and menstruation, blood consumption, sex, bloodshed, and how those apply to clean and unclean animals and food. Along with that, the contact with corpses, corpse contact, bloodshed, Moloch offerings. This, all of these are part of this realm of life versus death. That's the first major theme. Second theme, wholeness. Wholeness versus impairment. We've already been talking about this. So impaired priests cannot serve. Impaired sacrifices cannot be offered. Um, we're going to look at leprosy in a moment as a strange category of that one. Actually, we'll do that right now. Chapters 14, 13 and 14 are, are talking about what we've come to call leprosy. It's not the leprosy that we know from the New Testament, Hansen's disease. Uh, that, as he says, I come to understand that that did not make it into uh, Palestine until um, after the conquest of Alexander the Great. After those conquests, his army brought it back with them. And then it came into the Holy Land. And so by the time of Jesus, we are dealing with Hansen's disease when we look at leprosy. If you, take it, if you read through this carefully in Leviticus 13, it's, this is not, you, know, you don't have fingers falling off and things like that. This isn't what's being described. And medical folks who have poured through these chapters come to the conclusion that we're looking at a whole variety of different skin disorders, including some things like psoriasis, impetigo, erysipelas, scabies, ringworm, and you can see it varying from paragraph to paragraph. Uh, how contagious are these? I don't know much about these diseases at all. Some of them are very contagious. Some of them are very contagious, and others of them? Some are not. not some are not. They vary. Now they certainly, Israel certainly took the possibility of contagion seriously, so that um, the, lep the one who has a leprous disease is excluded from the community. Uh, until they are cleansed and, and can be returned to community again. That's one of the most awful things about bearing these diseases, is you're excluded from the community. Um, as the chapter goes on, in chapter 14, you get leprosy of your tent walls, or of your house walls, or of your pots and pans. We're not talking about skin diseases now, we're talking about... Um, mold. Mold and other things like that, the infestations that would form, that there would be reason to be concerned about. And so there are contagion practices there as well. The most curious thing for me in all of this, we could spend a lot of time on leprosy, but would you look please at Leviticus 13, 13. So in verse 12, if the disease breaks out on the skin so that it covers all of the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, as far as the, person, the priest can see, then the priest shall make an examination, and if the disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean. clean. From the, how do you like that for medicine? If your skin disease has covered your entire body, now you're clean. You are no longer mottled, mottled. You are whole. You are holy one thing. See what's going on? Third major theme is um, order versus chaos. And here we're back in Genesis 1 again with the dividing of all the different zones and God creating each kind of creature that now reproduces according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, over and over again. Keeping those kinds clear is important. What kind of creature is this? Donkey. Nope. Mule. 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 What is a mule? Uh, 
horse and a donkey. Blend of a horse and a donkey. Can they reproduce? No. Nope. Yep. That's illegal in biblical law. To, to produce any kind of, um, what do you call those? Hybridize. To hybridize animals. Um, you are not allowed to, um, here's Leviticus 19, you shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not put on a garment made of two different materials. Are any of you wearing garments of different materials? Yep. You sinners. No, unclean. You're unclean. You're not yeah. Uh, this one also shows up in Deuteronomy again in a little different version. No mixing of seeds, no yoking of different animals, and no mixing of fabrics. This is again keeping the categories clear and clean and separate. Keeping creation clean as it's supposed to be, keeping everything where it belongs. Okay. Okay, overall life versus death. Now, blood and seed. First of all, here is the Leviticus 17 key verse. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to atone for your lives, for it's the blood as life that atones. Um, make sure that you are not consuming blood. Pour it out and all of that. It's got a special purpose because it is life. Seed. Chapter 18 has a long section on incest laws and then the seed laws that come at the end. Um, you have on the back of your sheet a family tree. This is a schematic of the, uh, of the family that's drawn up here in, in Leviticus 18. This is addressed to the Israelite male. The U in here is the Israelite male. You can tell when you compare some verses that it's not talking to females, it's talking to males. And it's telling you within, this is a, like a four-generational family compound or something like that. Within that compound, are there any of the, the women that you can marry? The language is to, un, to approach to uncover, uncover nakedness, so that's to have sex with somebody. But in that context, it's, you're also talking about marrying them. Um, Israel doesn't allow for a whole lot of free sexual activity. Um, who, in the, who in the community? So the, the squares are men, the circles are women, the circles with hash marks all over them are women that are off limits to you. So you are. This is you, your aunt, your mother, your stepmother, your, you know, any of your aunts. They are all off limits, and there, there are reasons given in the text for that. Your uh, sister-in-law is off limits. Your sisters are off limits. Your um, daughter-in-law is off limits, and your granddaughters are off limits. Uh, your nieces, you can marry your niece, and you can marry your cousin. And there are examples of those in the Bible story. Here's one of the places where you can see the unevenness that a, a man can marry his niece, but a woman cannot marry her nephew. Um, so it's in this system, in this family system, it's weighted toward the elder, and it's an, a system of honor, weighted toward the elder and toward the male, very clearly. Any surprises in the family there? What about the chapter where that gal, um, she keeps marrying the brothers? Um, when, uh, when a woman that's actually becomes a, that's, that's, widowed, then the brother should marry that woman. Yeah, that's leveret marriage where um, if a man marries a woman and then he dies without any offspring, then it's the responsibility of his brother to take her as his wife, and the first child born to that union will be the dead man's child. It's a way of, so that's, that's legal in all of this. It's a way of um, seeing to it that the family, especially the male lines, that the family lines are included and represented down through, down through the story. I'm just going to say that's weird. That one surprise you? Yes. No. The daughter is not off limits. There's another chapter in Deuteronomy that does the same stuff, and again, the daughter is not mentioned. Why? She's seen as an... Yeah, you know, I kind of think one of the other themes that really shot through all of this is that um, using, like, language of sacred and clean and holy as a way to retain power. Yes. So, you know, 
know, I mean, like we can talk about water versus gas and so forth. And those are themes, but I really think that um, there is this theme of the, the people who have control over writing kind of naming the things that threaten them and yeah. calling them unholy or calling them unclean so as to retain power. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Let me suggest about the daughter. Um, a lot of scholars will tell you that, that men in that society owned the women. Um, it's not quite accurate, but the difference may not make any difference. It's more that the men owned the women's sexuality, that the men owned the women's fertility. And there may not be a difference that matters, but we're focusing on the fertility here. And so for, a, for a, a man to have a daughter and to be in charge of her fertility, he would be utterly a fool to, in this society to sully that. So that she could not be, she, she would not, her, her fertility would, not, would no longer be fair goods in the market. Um, power, but, I mean, I, I just see that as a power of entirety. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So I don't want to belabor this too much, but I want you to see that we would, I don't know if there's anybody in here that would want to argue in favor of incest, is there? But we've got very different reasons for it. Uh, the damage to the, to the person who's being abused. Um, we wouldn't go on and on and on about that. That's where we would focus. And that feels to us like a, a Christian kind of focus too, to not, not to damage the vulnerable. Um, so we would uphold a prohibition of incest, but for entirely different reasons. Okay. Five seed rules. Okay, verse 11, verse 19, unto a woman in the impurity of her uncleanness you shall not approach to uncover her nakedness. This is the uh, uh, menstrual sex. Why not? Someone touched on it earlier. Why shouldn't we? No reproduction. No reproduction. No reproduction. There cannot be, the seed cannot germinate. There's no, there's no reproduction possible. That's why. Unto the wife of your kinsman, there's a little problem with that word kinsman as to whether it means um, your literal kinsman, in which case this is a prohibition of incest, or whether it means your kinsman Israelite, which would be a prohibition of adultery, one or the other. So it's not clear which way it's meant, but, it's, but to do that, well, this lying for seed, there's that seed language, is defilement. Um, and the issue then is that the, um, you don't know if, there's, if there is adultery or if there's incest and a child is produced, whose seed is this? Who's, whose line is this? Who owns this child? You're mucking up the lines of property and society and all of that. We would have different reasons for looking at adultery. And here's the Moloch one. This is the child sacrifice one. And look at the language that's actually there. And of your seed, you shall not give cause to pass over to Moloch. It's talking, uh, usually translated offspring. It's the same word seed. You shall not take the gift of this seed that God has given you now in the form of a child and offer it over the, and off to, this, to this idol. Uh, here is the precious gift of life in the form of seed. You shall not uh, give over that way. Why, why not have bestial sex? Besides SPC. You'd be mixing. Mixing. Yep. Now whether that would actually work or not, whether for a man to have sex with an animal we could actually produce, I don't think it can, last I heard, can't produce anything. Um, but it, So the act itself is defiling, but if it were to produce anything, you know, you've got those stories in Genesis about the angels mixing with human women and producing giants. And I'm not sure how much they thought was possible, but that would be, the, the language that, that we read is perversion. The actual word means mixture. <coughs> it would be mixture. 
you're mixing species together. And notice that here's one of the specific places where it mentions women. A woman shall not give herself over to an animal for that same purpose. Because the animal seed then is, and even if there's no possibility of actually producing anything, that seed, that life gift is wasted. The unequally yoked. Unequally yoked. <laughs> so, now we're down to this one. With a male you shall not lie the lines of a woman. It is detestable, abomination, again, purity language. From what you've seen so far, if you could come up with a reason why Leviticus 18 would say that men shouldn't have sex together, what would be the reason? No children. No children. No children. The seed is wasted. From what you've seen so far, does Leviticus prohibit lesbian sex? No. Why not? No seed. No male seed is involved. Um, it's interesting that in the following one about beasts, women are talked about. In this one, they are not. I think it's important to pay attention to what's actually there. We're over time, I know. I've kept you longer than I should have. But here's, you can be thinking about this as we move into next time. That what's, here we have a whole system that's looking at upholding life versus death. And in the midst of that, the precious gift of human seed and how that shall be nurtured, especially in a society that's trying to survive and thrive and multiply. Um, how shall you carry that on? You think about that, we'll come back to these next time, and we'll also next time see places where the Old Testament pushes against this very stuff. Okay?